BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, I'm Scott Schaefer. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, and we are here in the nation's capital this week on Capitol Hill to figure out what's going on with this impeachment inquiry of President Trump and really dig in with the Californians at the center of it. It's been a big week, uh, Marisa, and of course, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, uh, has been driving this train from the beginning. Uh, And as you mentioned, there are many Californians here that are taking a role or trying to slow things down, either speed them up or slow them down. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, of course, the Republicans uh, being very critical of the process underway here in in Washington, and Madam Schiff spoke with us about some of that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Schiff is, of course, the Los Angeles Democrat at the center of the uh, impeachment inquiry himself because of his role as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. We also have Eric Swalwell, a Democrat from the East Bay, and Jackie Spear, a Democrat from the peninsula in San Francisco. We should mention we did reach out to Republicans, including Devin Nunes, uh, from the, also from the Central Valley, also on the Intelligence Committee. Haven't heard back yet from him. That's right. And so this week, there's been a lot of closed-door hearings. There's been a lot of opportunities for us to talk to these members, other than Nunes, of course. Um, We're going to start, though, with this press conference that was held Tuesday evening by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She had just come from a meeting with her caucus where they spoke about those Republican demands to take a vote on this inquiry itself. And, uh, you know, she really rejected those calls, as you're going to hear in a moment. Yeah, that's right, Marisa. You know, the Republicans have been very critical of this process, saying, first of all, they uh, want there to be a full vote in the House to launch this impeachment inquiry. House Democrats have wasted no time throwing fairness and precedent to the wind. Pointing out that other impeachment efforts against Clinton and Richard Nixon had that vote, although Nancy Pelosi is pushing back, saying there is no requirement whatsoever in the Constitution. The House has very broad authority on how uh, to conduct an impeachment inquiry. Of course, like many things these days, Scott, this has become more of a war of words over sort of where things stand politically than really what the law is. And I think that um, as in the days to come, we're going to see even more of those fights play out as the Trump administration continues to stonewall. And yet, some of these uh, folks who have left the administration have come forward to speak to the Intelligence Committee. They have, and you have timelines very different for each party. Of course, the Democrats pushing, pushing, pushing. They want to get this done uh, by the end of the year, I would say, or early into January. Republicans, on the other hand, of course, slowing things down. They want uh, Democrats to have to sue, take it to court in order to get some of these documents and some of these people to testify. All right, well, let's hear directly from Speaker Pelosi and Adam Schiff. I wanted to give you a brief update on the investigation. Uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, I think we've made dramatic progress. Uh, there's no requirement that we have a vote. And so we, at this time, we will not be having a vote. And I'm very pleased with the thoughtfulness of our caucus. 
Why not call the administration's bluff and say... Why? Because we're not here to call bluffs. We're here to find the truth, to uphold the Constitution of the United States. This is not a game for us. This is deadly serious. So, Scott, there was some scuttlebutt before this press conference among members of the press that perhaps this would be the moment that House Democrats said that they are going to take a vote on an impeachment inquiry. That did not happen. Pelosi was pretty forceful in saying there's no requirement for this. We don't need to do it. We are not going to do it. In response to a question, she essentially said, you know, we're not going to call the president's bluff. That's not what we're here to do. Um, and so I do think that, you know, we're hearing more and more that from Schiff and others that there could be more public hearings at some point, but really no timeline of when. Right. And as uh, Adam Schiff pointed out, there is no special counsel, no special investigator who is doing these depositions. That's why Congress is doing it. Uh, if there had been, like Mueller did all the same kind of work behind closed doors until it became time for it to be public. And I think both the speaker and Adam Schiff suggested that there will be that time when they uh, bring perhaps some of these witnesses back uh, to talk before the cameras and everyone else who uh, will be assembled. And they hearken back even to Watergate and Clinton and noted that, you know, there were special counsels or something of the sort. They were called something different in each inquiry um, that, again, did those behind closed doors investigations. So I think really pushing back on the narrative that we're hearing from the GOP about the, the, the need for this process. Schiff also no noted that he says that in every deposition and every interview thus far, GOP members and their staffers have been there asked to, you know, able to ask as many questions as they want. Um, and so kind of different than what the, the public uh, back and forth has been between the parties. Well, and I think it's clear, too, that the speaker is not going to be uh, bullied or uh, rushed into taking a vote uh, if there is going to be an impeachment inquiry vote of the full House. Uh, they don't want to uh, respond to what Republicans are saying, but rather to do this on their own timetable uh, because, you know, they are in charge. They're the majority party. Right. Although I think the question becomes if if that narrative that I think Republicans are pushing really overcomes what they see as the sort of reality of these investigations on the Democratic side. And we'll see. We're about to go talk to Representative Schiff, um, who is a hard man to pin down these days. Yes. Yes. He's got a lot on his mind. Uh, and, the th and it's a lot of moving parts, too. You know, we don't know. He may be hearing and probably is hearing things we're not privy to in terms of other perhaps whistleblowers, other State Department officials, or others who are coming forward, or whose attorneys are coming forward. So, you know, I'm sure that there's just a lot of things going on we don't know about at this point. I would hope so. I right? hope so, I man, mean, because gosh. I don't know a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go talk to Representative Schiff. All right. So, Congressman, you just spent a good hour and a half or so with Speaker Pelosi. Just what, what are the concerns that you and she have at this point, uh, this inquiry now is entering its fourth week? Well, we weren't discussing concerns. We were certainly um, discussing where we are at this point in the investigation and uh, had an opportunity to relay to the speaker, but also to the caucus earlier this evening, the enormous progress we've made over the last couple of weeks. Um, when you consider how long, by comparison, the Mueller investigation took uh, to uncover some of the basic facts of the President's interaction and his campaign with the Russians, uh, we have learned um, in breakneck speed about the President's misconduct vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Uh, we are fleshing out the facts of what took place before that phone call in which he sought to coerce this very dependent country to investigate his rival and help him in the next election. Um, so uh, we're, I think, very fortunate that courageous witnesses are coming forward under subpoena. They're being compelled, but nonetheless, they're obeying the law. 
even though the administration is doing everything they can to stop them. So talk about why that that's important to Democrats to sort of flesh out what led up to that July phone call and what happened afterward. I think there's a sense that, you know, a lot of Democrats came around to the idea of this impeachment inquiry because of that memo of that call. So in a way, wasn't that the smoking gun you guys wanted? I mean, what what more does the committee need to find here? Well, it certainly may be the case that uh, some of the most powerful evidence came out uh, in the beginning of this investigation when that call record was published. Um, But Uh, We are learning that that call did not take place in isolation. There were efforts made before that call. There were efforts made after that call um, to condition what the Ukrainians desperately wanted, which was a summit between these two leaders to show that the new president of Ukraine had a relationship with the most powerful patron of Ukraine, and that is the United States. There was an effort to condition that on getting Ukraine to commit to these political investigations that would help the president's re-election. Um, We are also delving into the facts regarding the suspension of military aid, uh, because obviously this pressure campaign on Ukraine was being conducted at a time when they were in desperate need of military help, and that military help was not forthcoming. So one of the things that Republicans have really harped on, um, well, one is the way that that you sort of opened that first hearing and, and, and summed up your summation of the call. The second is around the process here, and I know that you and the Speaker have been very forceful in saying we don't need to take an impeachment inquiry vote. That is not the process that the Constitution lays out. Are you worried that those two things, though, are giving sort of fanning fuel on the right to undercut this inquiry with the American public? Uh, No. At the end of the day, the Republicans do not want to have to defend the president's conduct because it's indefensible. So the only thing they're left with is what the president usually does, which is attacking those that are conducting the investigation. Well, they don't have Bob Mueller to attack anymore, so they're attacking me, and that's fine. It comes with the job. It's not going to stop me or anyone else from getting to the truth. And, um, and I think that this is you know, quite transparent uh, because they don't want to be in the position of trying to say that it's okay for a U.S. president to coerce a foreign president dependent on military aid to fend off the Russians. It's okay to violate the national security interests of the United States uh, if it helps the president's campaign. They don't want to have to defend that conduct because they can't. And so what are they left with? They're left with the, end, the president's endless attacks on me, on the speaker, on the process. Uh, but that's pretty weak gruel compared to the seriousness of these allegations. I know you and the speaker have made it very clear that there is no constitutional requirement for voting in the full House for an inquiry, uh, an impeachment inquiry. But I'm wondering, what are you hearing from some of this, the, the new, the freshman Democrats in swing districts in terms of the politics of that and whether it would be helpful or not? Are they concerned about having to be on the record one way or the other? You know, I, I think you probably should ask those members and they may have very differing views on the subject. We are talking to a couple of them. Yeah, well, one thing is, is abundantly clear, though, and that is the Constitution. The Constitution says that the House will have the sole power of impeachment. And that means that the House can organize that impeachment inquiry in the way that um, it determines, and no court can second-guess how the, the Congress does that. Um, so we are on the firmest of constitutional ground. Um, but look, if we had a vote tomorrow on a resolution... The day after tomorrow, the Republicans and the president would have a different process attack. 
Um, the White House counsel has asserted privilege, for example, over conversations with the president, over conversations that didn't involve the president, over with conversations people never worked for the president. Um, and so the next argument might be, well, they're trying to get privileged communications. And it will be a never-ending set of moving goalposts. We're not interested in playing that game. We're interested in getting to the facts. And I think what really disturbs the GOP leadership in the House right now is we are getting to the facts. And what is really disturbing the president is these witnesses he doesn't want to testify are nonetheless obeying the law and testifying. Uh, and we're going to continue to make sure we uh, get the facts to the American people. Quickly, I'm on process. Talk about what's next and how you see this playing out in the coming weeks and months. You've said that some of the witnesses that have already testified could end up coming back in open session. Um, we know that you know the speaker has said she wants this to be a fairly quick process. Do you guys go to the mat to fight the Trump administration over maybe you know subpoenas that aren't filled, or is this going to happen pretty quickly? Well, you know, first of all, in terms of the process, um, it's important for the public to realize, uh, notwithstanding GOP claims to the contrary, at every committee interview, every committee deposition, every committee hearing, the Republican members have the opportunity to ask any question they want. The Republican members from all the three committees that have been conducting the hearings for the last two weeks have been attendants. Anyone, any of them that want to come have been able to come. Um, Republican staff, as well as Democratic staff, are able to ask whatever questions they want. We alternate in one hour or 45 minute increments until everyone has had a chance to ask their questions. So uh, it's hard to describe a process um, more equal to both sides than that one. In terms of why initially we're doing things in closed session, there's a very good reason for that. And that is um, there was no special prosecutor, no special counsel to investigate the Ukraine misconduct of the president. So this is unlike Watergate, where there was a special prosecutor who did that investigative work in the grand jury um, that was not done to public view, uh, or during the Clinton investigation when Ken started his investigation, also not in the public view. The reason why, for investigative reasons, you don't want the initial stages to be in open session is it allows one witness to tailor their testimony to something another witness said. It tells a witness, okay, I can give up this much information, but I can conceal that much. Uh, or it allows people to lie more effectively. And we've had people who lied to our committee. Uh, Michael Cohen pled guilty to lying to our committee. Roger Stone has been indicted for lying to our committee. And so we want to make sure we get to the truth. Um, but there will come a point where we'll want to potentially bring some of these witnesses back in open session, where we'll have other witnesses testify for the first time in open session. But at this early investigative stage, this is what is most uh, conducive to getting to the truth. All right. Congressman Schiff, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now it's Wednesday morning. We are in the Rayburn office building on Capitol Hill. We are about to sit down with San Mateo Congresswoman Jackie Spear. We'll hear from her after this short break. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. This is an impeachment inquiry update. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. We've been in Washington all week long on Capitol Hill talking with some of the key figures from California. We're going to hear now from uh, Peninsula Congresswoman Jackie Speer, who is a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Thank you. It's great that you're here. How come you're here? Good to see you. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you sit on the House Intelligence Committee, Congresswoman. You're one of a handful of, of Californians on that committee, including, obviously, the chairman. Can you talk about what the last week or so around these closed door depositions you guys have been taking are like? Is everyone on the committee invited? Are you guys doing the questioning? Is it generally staff? Like, what's the dynamic in those rooms? Understanding you can only say so much. Sure. So we are now looking at the whistleblower complaint. Mind you, had this whistleblower not had the courage to come forward, we would know nothing about this. And that, to me, should be frightening to every American, that there is uh, that kind of underhanded activity going on in our government. Having said that, the meetings take place in the House uh, Intelligence Committee's um, offices. um, There are a number of committees represented, the Intelligence Committee, the Oversight Committee, and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, and so members of all of those committees are invited to participate. Republicans and Democrats. Republicans and Democrats. Um, typically, the staff attorneys will start off the questioning. Um, the majority will have one hour to ask questions, and then the minority has an hour. And we go back and forth like that all day and into the night. So the most recent interviews that we have done have gone on for eight to 10 hours. Wow. So it, it's becoming clear that Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, is at the center of so much of this. But he is apparently refusing to comply with the subpoena. Uh, he's not a government official. Uh, what can the impeachment inquiry do with regard to him in terms of compelling him to talk? Or do you feel like you don't need him to talk? There's you know, many things we can do. One is um, civil contempt. We can hold him in civil contempt. That will move through the uh, legal process. will take months, if not a year. Uh, we can also do what's called inherent contempt, which would mean that we would have the sergeant of arms um, go and find Mr. Giuliani, bring him to the House floor, and at that point he would be subject to questioning, and if he doesn't comply, uh, he could be jailed or fined. It would be great TV, I guess. <laughs> well, it would, it would be traumatic, to say the least. But I think um, there's growing evidence that he has violated any number of laws. You were here, you've been here for years, and of course you've been here for all of the Trump presidency and the Mueller investigation, which kind of came and went. Uh, His testimony was less compelling, I think, than Democrats had hoped. How would you characterize the mood, the feeling, the sort of intensity around this current impeachment inquiry versus what you heard and felt uh, during the Mueller investigation? So Scott, I think it's important to point out that the Mueller report had a great deal of gravitas. 
Um, the first component was whether or not the Trump campaign engaged in a conspiracy with the Russians. There were over 250 contacts by the campaign with Russian operatives. Um, there were 34 in-person meetings. They would turn over polling data. Um, there was WhatsApp used to provide information to Konstantin uh, Kalimnik, who was a member of the military intelligence, over and over and over again. So to suggest that that wasn't evidence of a conspiracy and a welcoming of Russian interference, I think um, really it defies um, uh, any kind of objective review. You then look at the ob obstruction of justice elements, and there were 10 times when the president obstructed justice and in which Bob Mueller said, but for the fact that you have not a law, but a guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department that you can't uh, indict a sitting president, he would be indicted for those reasons. Now, the American people couldn't get their heads around that. They do get their heads around a president of the United States saying, I want you to dig up dirt on my opponent from a foreign leader and in so doing withholding uh, resources that the Congress has already um, made uh, available to them and appropriated. So it has more to do with the ability of the American people to you know, get their arms around an, a, an issue while they're also trying to live their lives and get their kids to school and um, you know, make a living. All right. Last question, Congresswoman. Given all that you just described in terms of how complex the Mueller report was, how long it sort of dragged on, and I think, you know, the sense that the public really wasn't there all the way, is that an argument for really sort of simple, clear articles of impeachment if you guys reach that point when you're talking about focusing this just on Ukraine and I guess potentially on obstruction? I think that the articles of impeachment, if they are drafted, should be simple and there should be few and they should be compelling. There has to be um, a gravitas associated with these articles that um, the American people recognize is clearly a violation of our Constitution. You know, um, I often repeat the, the story about Benjamin Franklin coming out of the Constitutional Convention when he was asked by someone, uh, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And Franklin responded, a republic if you can keep it. And that's our job right now, to keep this republic. Thank you. Right, thank you. So Scott, we heard Jackie Spear a little bit touch on some of the politics of this. Of course, Democrats are trying to, you know, proceed very carefully and, and be sober about this moment. Um, but the politics are in play. And we saw that at the debate Tuesday night where you had the moderators open the debate with this question about impeachment. Since the last debate, House Democrats have officially launched an impeachment inquiry against President Trump, which all the candidates on this stage support. And we should say that audio comes to us courtesy of CNN and the New York Times, which co-sponsored the debate last night. And um, as you'll hear in a moment, a lot of agreement. The Senator, impeachment must go forward. Uh, I think that the House will find him uh, guilty of, worthy of impeachment. No choice, no choice but to begin an impeachment proceeding. This is one of those moments, and so Congress must ask. 
There was a lot of agreement and also a lot of focus on Joe Biden. Of course, his son Hunter has been the subject of a lot of attention, uh, having been on the equity firm board of a Chinese company and an oil company board in Ukraine. My son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy of the United States government. Some question as to whether Biden was forceful enough in defending his son and also pivoting, as politicians are supposed to do, to take the, sort of take the, uh, be aggressive. Uh, and we heard a lot of the other candidates not criticizing Biden, criticizing the president, kind of treating him with kid gloves a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think unlike other issues like Medicare for All, where they are happy to show their differences, this is one where you see the Democratic Party at least attempting to stick together. Really no attacks on Biden or his handling of this so far. And I think that, you know, we we do hear really uh, the candidates being in lockstep, even going further than some members of Congress around what they would like to see here happen. Um, of course, one of those members was Eric Swalwell. He was on the debate stage earlier this year, congressman from the East Bay. He did bow out of the presidential race, but he is still on the House Intelligence Committee, and we sat down with him this week. You were a candidate for president, and of course this issue is playing out in this election. How, how do you feel about the way the candidates, the Democrats, are handling the issue, and you know what, if any, concerns do you have about the impact on 2020? These candidates have to have you know, their feet uh, in two lanes. One lane is, is basically showing that I will be better than this, you know, showing that you, know, you will conduct yourself, you know, I, I would say, professionally with integrity and not engage in the conduct that the president you know, is taking us through right now. And the other lane is that I also understand why you know, so many people rolled the dice uh, and voted for Donald Trump, and that you know, they too can you know, offer change that would lift up the lives when it relates to health care, student loan debt, keeping them safe, uh, you know, and that, that they acknowledge that. I think you have to be in both lanes. Uh, so being presidential is very, I think, important. Uh, it's a very important trait right now. One of the reasons Speaker Pelosi was, I think, reluctant to embrace uh, an impeachment inquiry was she was concerned about maintaining control of the House and concerned about some of the swing districts where Democrats knocked off Republicans and how voters in those districts would feel about impeaching the president as opposed to dealing with other issues they might care about more. Has that dynamic changed? Has that equation changed at all? I, th I think the urgency of this upcoming election and the fact that he is directly inviting another country to engage in our elections. For me, you know, I had also, I was late to the you know, call for impeachment. And for me, it was that George Stephanopoulos interview where the president said that, you know, if offered dirt, he would again accept it. And at that point, I thought, I mean, geez, there's, there's no saving this guy. Like, he would take us down the same rabbit hole and create the same mess and didn't learn any lessons from 2016. So that just shows me, uh, you know, kind of a malicious intent and in that there is no benefit of the doubt for what he did in 2016, that this is just a pattern of behavior and that that has to, we have to draw a line and say, we're not going to accept that. You're a former prosecutor. You've uh, made a lot of sort of allusions to that. And when, you know, and, I missed and, that job. <laughs> you do? Yeah, I missed that job. Yeah. Is that, is it simpler to prove that kind of crime? You get closer uh, much, you know, faster. Uh, and here, I mean, you're, I mean, and for good reason, you know, this is the leader of the free world. And if you were to impeach and remove that person, you know, you want it to be a fair process. You want it to be you know, for a high crime, uh, you know, uh, or misdemeanor, and it's to be taken seriously. But I do think my experience probably serves me well, you know, being, as you said, on both fronts, uh, judiciary and intelligence. What is the process now? You talked about maybe having some of the hearings out in the open. We know we've been uh, hearing from the Trump administration that they want, quote unquote, due process. They want a ability to, you know, ask witnesses questions, things like that. Is that a mechanism that will happen in the House, or do you envision that that's part of the Senate trial? 
So, good point. I, I believe the Trump administration is purposefully uh, confusing people by saying that, you know, they have a right, you know, to a trial, because the truth is uh, the House impeaches, the trial happens in the Senate, and, and they would be represented uh, in the Senate, and the process is different uh, there. So anyone who's familiar, uh, you know, with law and order uh, knows that, you know, there's a grand jury indictment, and then the standard is much higher to convict somebody. The House is essentially the grand jury. It's a majority of the House uh, to impeach the president. It would take two-thirds uh, in the Senate. That's where the trial would take place. Again, but if we're talking about process, that's because, you know, the Republicans, I, I think, don't want to talk about the underlying act. And I, I think they're going to have to eventually face the fact that this is a corrupt way of doing, uh, this is a corrupt way uh, of carrying out the duties of the president. And no one should be allowed to do that. Last question. What should we be looking for, in, especially in the next week or two? In the next week or two, I, I think it'll be important to see, you know, will there be any cooperation at all, you know, from the White House? Or will this just be under consideration for an article of impeachment in, of, in and of itself, you know, obstruction of Congress? But as I said, the witnesses that we have heard from in the last three weeks uh, really are starting to give us a timeline of what happened, uh, who was essentially on the Trump-Giuliani shakedown scheme, and then who was doing legitimate uh, foreign policy. Also, I am heartened to see the cooperators, meaning the people from the State Department who are coming forward and honoring the subpoenas. I think a lot of us during this administration uh, have been looking for, you know, like, you know, you look for a proof of life. Uh, if someone, you know, is, is kidnapped or taken here, we are looking for like a proof of honor. Like, a, are there honorable people in the administration that we just have not heard from? And I think you're starting to see those pangs, you know, of honor uh, as people have come forward and defied the State Department order to not testify. Congressman Swallow, thank you so much for talking to us on a very busy week. Thanks. And that's a wrap for this special edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Special thanks to our host at NPR in Washington, D.C. for having us this week. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.